All right, here we go. This is the Q-Man. Welcome to the podcast. Man, one thing about my podcast failing miserably that's great is the more sponsors that drop off, the quicker my intros become. So it's like a win for everybody. So you, too, can help participate in my success, which is actually failure. How's that for a Silver Linings playbook? Nice job, dickhead. See, I already didn't turn the sound off. Fucked everything up already. Uh, See what I mean? It's just, (laughs) why would you... Why would you sponsor this podcast? Hi, I want to thank my sponsors. That's the first thing I'd like to do today. This is the QTR podcast. We're going to be talking to uh, two people here and after, collectively referred to as the Echo Chamber, which I love. Uh, But first, let me just tell you, my friends at JM Bullion have been supporting my podcast for years now. They have done over $6 billion in sales. That is the only place I buy my gold and silver bullion. I love JM Bullion. They have great inventory. They have great prices. They're wonderful people to work with. And QTR podcast listeners have their own rep there. So if you don't feel like browsing the website, there's plenty of inventory available on the website anyways. But if you don't feel like doing that or you have questions, maybe it's your first time buying gold or silver bullion, you want to know how it's packaged. You don't want it arriving in a brown paper package with a stamp on it that says, not gold in here. You want it packaged discreetly, which they always do. Uh, But if you have any other questions that I am clearly unable to answer in a serious manner, email Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at jmbullion.com. Laura will help you out with anything you need. Shout them out. Tell them the Q-Man sent you. Send them some love. Please, if you buy gold and silver bullion, they are the uh, the North Star in my sponsorship sky that keeps the uh, podcast afloat, and I love them for it. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at the Sang Lucci Steam Room. And Sang Lucci's Master Course, I think, has started already. I think it started like two days ago. But I guarantee you, if you want access, he will hook you up with a discount. I'm sure he can get you some of the shit that he's done already. But Lucci's Master Course now has 26 course modules. Hey, Chris, you say to me, this guy's an idiot. Maybe I don't want to take his shit. You might be right. You might not like him. Check out my last podcast with Lucci. You tell me if he's an idiot or not. If you like him, take his course. If you don't, don't. It's that simple. It's like people say, oh, I can't believe you'd say this, this, and this on your podcast. I'd be like, why are you fucking listening? <laughs> Nobody's forcing you to listen to my podcast. I'm already telling you it's the worst podcast in history. Now, Lucci's a smart guy. The Steam Room is a beautiful piece of software, too, that helps you track flow in the illiquid compared to the equity market, options market, which uh, these guys have been chasing flow in the options market for a decade, and they've been successful at it. Sang Lucci parties in motherfucking Hawaii, folks. The guy gets shit done. He's a great guy. Check out my links. They'll hook you up with whatever you want. Tell them I sent you. This podcast also brought to you by my friend George Gammon over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. When I think about the echo chamber and generally people that know what I, you know, are from the same cloth that I'm cut from, from a macro perspective, but know 10 times more than I do, and just generally look better and have a nicer head of hair, George Gammon comes to mind immediately. Rebel Capitalist Pro is George Gammon teaming up with uh, Brent Johnson, smart person, Lynn Alden, smart person, Chris McIntosh, smart person, and other generally smart people that are going to help you understand how to preserve your wealth In a world of -of out-of-control central bankers where inflation means you have enough to buy a car today and tomorrow you have enough for a Domino's pizza. That's what inflation means right now. In a world where Klaus Schwab wants you to eat crickets. Who the fuck elected this guy, by the way? Jesus Christ. Why do I even have to look at him? Where did he come from? 
You know, remember when Trump was talking about Obama and he's like, nobody ever heard of the guy. Where did he? He just came from nowhere. That's how I feel. <laughs> That's how I feel about Klaus Schwab. One morning, he wasn't a problem. The next morning I woke up and this guy's standing there telling me that I'll own nothing. That guy can kiss my ass. Uh, none of that has anything to do with George Gammon, but you should check out Rebel Capitalist Pro because uh, I like it. And uh, you're malleable. So you listen to the podcast host just like I do when I listen to podcasts. How about that? For a uh, for an advertising, uh, what have you. Jesus Christ. All right, let's get on with it. This podcast also brought to you by my longtime supporters, uh, all the people on my Patreon list. I love you guys. I really appreciate you. I don't know if you're still on there. Chris Boas, Chris Bede, uh, my friends over at Investors Underground, all you guys that I forgot about of late. Maybe next time I'll go through the whole list and read them all. But I got a great one today, man, and I'm fucking stoked for this podcast. All right, here we are on a little podcast I'm going to refer to as, I can't open this can, The Echo Chamber with uh, two of my friends, Andy Sheckman and Larry Lapard, who I don't even know if they've talked to each other before, but we'll cover that uh, here in a second. Uh, Andy is the president of Miles Franklin, precious medalist and uh, an all-around wonderful human being. And Larry Lapard is a graduate of a small community college up near Cambridge called Harvard. And he runs a fund called the EMA GARP Fund. Uh, and if I got any of that wrong, I did it from memory. And I'm not stressing it. So sorry. How are you, gentlemen? It's all, it's all good, Chris. Yeah, it's all good as well. Yeah, Larry and I know each other. We've been on yeah, a podcast together before. Oh, have yeah. you? Yeah. All right. Yeah, so, impressive. Andy, this will this will hopefully go better than uh, the last time we tried to do a podcast with <laughs> with another party when when said unnamed party had a temper tantrum and hung up on us. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. I, I'm I'm all good with that. All right, so listen, I want to cover everything with you two, and I want to give you guys a chance to uh, to talk with each other as well. Um, you know, you two are really the only two people. Th- there's a lot of people out there that understand the geopolitical situation that's playing out right now, where, you know, something we've all talked about. We have the West kind of bifurcating from the BRICS nations, uh, at the same time that the United States is abusing the corpse of the U.S. dollar uh, mercilessly, incessantly, and brutally. Um, but everybody has varying opinions on what that is going to mean for the U.S. dollar going forward. Uh, you two are really the only two that I think are with me, and that's why this is truly like the echo chamber, in, in really kind of predicting that the dollar as we know it uh, isn't going to stand. And I want you guys to just start with that. And I guess, you know, Larry, you could start first. Uh, I read your letter. I think people on my Substack have as well. But tell me a little bit about what you think the the ultimate um, path looks like for the U.S. dollar, maybe the next five, ten years. That's a great question, Chris, and, and I don't I don't have a crystal ball. Um, but the big picture is obviously the U.S. and the dollar is losing, you know, by extension, are losing influence in the world, and we see that everywhere. You know, the BRICS currency talks, everyone trading in their own currencies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm friends with Brent, and I get the dollar milkshake theory. Um, you know, and I think at times there's there's a lot of truth in it, but there are other times when 
it, it doesn't hold water. And, and, and we're in one of those times right now. They, they literally have to weaken the dollar um, as a result of our debt position because if they don't, uh, we blow up, you know, um, we get into a death, death spiral, a debt death spiral. And of course, we're already close to being in that. Um, and when I look at currencies, I tend to put them into two buckets. Um, I mean, there's, there's just the exchange value of a currency. I mean, money gets used in two important ways. One, it gets used for exchange and it gets used for savings. And so, you you know, I mean, look, you can do an FX transaction in 10 seconds. And so, you know, if, if somebody buys something from China and, and you know, they're, they're German, for example, and they, they convert you know, euros to dollars and dollars to yuan and they buy something in China, boom, it's done. And the dollar got used in that transaction, but nobody held that dollar for any period of time. The, the issue to me is what's what's a neutral reserve asset and what, where are people going to store their wealth? And that's where I think the dollar is just going to get destroyed um, because of the profligate policies of our politicians, which we all know. And so, you know, there's just, I mean, the 10-year used to be the rock, you know, 10-year U.S. Treasury used to be the rock solid foundation of the financial world, everything kind of was based off the tenure, right? That's how we priced assets. Right. And of course, you know, the money's broken and that's all been blown up. And so what I see going on is that the, the tenure is just, no one's going to trust it anymore. No one's going to trust the dollar. And the dollar might be used as a payment rail for means of exchange. Nobody's going to hold it. And that's what's really, that's what really counts. And so the only two numbers that matter to me or three numbers that matter to me are the dollar cross between gold, the dollar cross over silver and the dollar cross versus Bitcoin. Because I consider those to be the three neutral reserve, potential neutral reserve assets that are going to replace all fiat currencies because all these governments are in the same boat. So I've tried to keep that as crisp as I could. Yeah, so Andy, I'll ask you the same question, but also, you know, Brent, and Brent Johnson is really one of the people that I'm talking about because, you know, we we get to a same kind of point with Brent and then he just thinks something completely different will happen in terms of the dollar. But he's we all see a lot of things the same way. My question to you is same same question. Five, 10 years, what does the dollar look like? And also for a guy like Brent Johnson who uses the analog that, hey, uh, when I'm traveling in Switzerland or I'm in the Netherlands and I ask a cab driver if I can pay him U.S. dollars, he hastily says yes. Uh, what is going to change that as well? What's going to change that sentiment around the world? It's funny you say that. Last time I was in Switzerland, I couldn't find anyone that would take dollars. And that's the truth. You know, I think that <clears throat> the world's, um, discontent with the dollar is 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 now finally starting to uh, translate into action, and I think that the government has been able to do the U.S. government has been able to do whatever it wanted for decades simply because we were the petrodollar or the the world reserve currency, and and of course this enormous benefit to the country to the United States has. Um, has created, you know, our ability to live well beyond our means. And I, I think that, I really think that's coming to an end. And, you know, you can point to one event and, and the question becomes, was this, um, uh, was this one event, uh, was it premeditated? And that is weaponizing of the dollar. And, you know, it, it's, it's not only, it's, it's not only sanctioning, uh, Russian assets. It's also confiscating them and now using them to rebuild the Ukraine. In my opinion, <clears throat> in my opinion, the argument that guys like Brett Johnson make, or even my buddy Rick Rule, who you know, he said, "Well, if the euro didn't work, uh, you had nations moving in other directions." And and Brent's argument of you know the 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 dollar being the preeminent currency the have having the most liquid uh, and and 
uh, versatile markets. All of these things are true and have been true until they're not true. And the way that it it breaks, the way this whole system of, of, of believing the dollar is the only pathway breaks when you when you take a look and see what all of these countries are doing in unison the relationships that are being built the the pathways that are being built financially um, militarily in a cooperative fashion are unlike anything we've ever seen before and i think that when you go back to 2019 and look at what happened with the bank of international settlements reclassifying gold as the world's only other tier one reserve and watching the speed at which these central banks are accumulating gold and commodities. Going back to what Rick Rule said, it didn't work because you had everyone pulling in different directions. This, I believe, will work because I do believe that they are going to use a, a, a peg. Gold will be the peg. It will be the... Um, it will be what gives everyone equal footing at the table. You look at a country like Turkey, who has formally applied to BRICS. They've accumulated more gold than anyone in the world for the past year and a half. What I'm getting at is simply this. This is their one shot to make it work. When you see China coming in and brokering peace deals between Sunni and Shiite, between Iraq and, and uh, Saudi Arabia, building embassies in each other's countries, when you see our allies saying, like Macron, in the article that you wrote just last week, Chris, talking about a 51-point treaty from military engagement to 5G. When you look at all of these things that are happening, spinning faster and faster and faster, they all have one common theme, and that is moving away from the, the Western perception of hypocrisy, the, the hegemony, and they're going to use commodities to make it work. It will not be a system based on debt and promises. It will right. be a system, as Zoltan Pozar puts it, based on transparency and commodities. And that's why I think you're seeing all of these countries massively accumulate commodities, strike deals in, in, uh, in cooperation, uh, mutual benefit, and moving to a system away from the Western debt um, and system that's based upon you know the dollar being the world reserve currency or being the petrodollar those days are coming to an end when you see saudi arabia now formally apply to the BRICS, tell the folks at davos that they're willing to take other currencies for oil and now apply to the shanghai cooperation uh, cooperation organization this is a really big deal and the pieces are slowly being put into place and when you realize that the whole system is as fragile as OPEC, all OPEC countries on the Belt Road Initiative and Saudi Arabia making the statement that we are no longer going to take dollars for oil, the whole thing breaks apart. So what do I think? I think Brent, ha Brent has been right until he's not. And this is a game where they're not going to flip the switch until all the pieces are put into right. place. You take a step back and look and see what they've done and you can see those pieces are being put into place. And just from just just from like a Zen like perspective too, putting aside all of the actual intricacies of this very you know complex bifurcation that's taking place, because I agree with you that's that's how it's going to happen, right? They're gonna they're gonna want every single one of their pieces in place, and then it's going to be mate and one, and we're not even going to realize until we look up and and we see it. But just from an existential kind of point of view, you start talking about a, a system built on transparency and built on commodities. It feels like a very long, overdue, 
exhale from, you know, the natural laws of economics, just kind of just exhaling uh, upon the uh, upon the world, just exhaling the breath upon the world and gently reminding everybody that, hey, underneath all of your arrogance and hubris, there really is an order to things, right? There, there's an order to economics. There are natural economic laws that are going to wind up ruling the day. This is Ron Paul would always say the free market always wins. He's trying to make the same point, right? Do you guys agree with that? I do. And I think, you know, the biggest mistake the U.S. made was weaponizing the dollar by grabbing the Russian reserves. I mean, you know, all, all money is based on trust and we just violated the trust of the world. And the world is, you know, as you point out, Chris, I mean, the world is responding appropriately as, as you might think, you know, as action and reaction. So, yeah, it, it all makes sense to me. It's interesting. I just, uh, my partner just listened to Stanley Druckenmiller's most recent podcast, and he said his number one trade idea is short the dollar right now, right here, right now. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I can't agree more. What what Larry just said, you know, when you talk about uh, nations being reluctant to keep their reserves in dollars for fear of, of any conflict with the United States and, and its allies would result in confiscation of funds. And what he just said specifically is that you can even, I think, kind of sidestep the laws of economics, at least for an extended period of time, if you trust the economic policies of the of the administrator of the world reserve currency. And I think if you don't trust, and we have lost a lot of that trust, then gold solves a big part of that economic problem because it is an asset that is not simultaneously someone else's liability. Exactly. And I think that's why you're seeing these countries massively accumulate what? The only other world tier one world reserve, oh, the only other tier one asset, according to central banks, or a high liquid uh, asset that is... Um, I guess viewed as as good as the dollar by many. It, it also it also neatly fits into a large macro trend, Chris, that I know you believe in. I talked about my letter. We all believe it. You know, forty years of deflation is over, done. You know, and this is Zoltan's point, and and everybody is trying to encumber commodities now because, you know, we've underinvested in commodities and we've overinvested in paper financial structure, and guess what? Paper financial structure is collapsing, and commodities are entering an enormous bull market that we think I think is going to run for years. And so, um, and you're seeing this, I mean, you know, how about first Republic, right? You know, we don't even know what they're going to do, but we, oh, well, we do know what they're going to do. We, they just haven't done it yet. They are going to print to fill the hole that exists there. And, you know, Dodd-Frank, throw it out the window. You know, the laws we made, we, we're going to ignore them. Yeah. I just, I, I wrote a piece about that, um, <clears throat> just a couple of days ago and the, the gist of the piece was, look, two things are happening, right? You have yet another bank being put into receivership by the government powers that be, really with quite a ho-hum attitude. And this, this piece isn't uh, published now, but by the time this podcast comes out, it'll be published, so you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, you know, we're kind of just bailing. Remember 2008? We had a discussion, right? TARP was a fucking huge deal. There was push yeah. and there was pull, and there was this great Zero Hedge article yesterday that I was reading talking about uh, the intense and rigorous debate that had to take place before that bailout happened, which, you know, look, we still may have made the very wrong decision, but at least we knew that there was rigorous debate about it. Now that has passed, and here we are 15 years later, and after taking that first step, we really feel, and, you know, 
uh, implementing horrific, atrocious, arrogant monetary policy over the last 15 years, we've reached this new epoch where it's even easier for us to just say, yep, just bail it out. You know, Silicon Valley mm. Bank, First Republic, doesn't matter what was in the portfolio, doesn't matter who was ultimately responsible for driving the bank into the ground. That was the other thing I loved when they were blaming Silicon Valley Bank on crypto. You know, the FDIC right. report came out last week and said, right. oh, it was just mismanagement. But but before that, you got all these fucking lobotomized, clueless politicians. This was, this was crypto's fault. You know, and it's just like, look, I hate crypto as much as the next guy, but it wasn't. You know, so we're flailing willy-nilly to come up with a an explanation. And now we're not even doing that with First Nobody's even talked about, you know, the flaming bag of dog shit that is First Republic's portfolio. They're just saying, throw them a bone, just bail them out. Now, while that's happening with that ho-hum attitude, very cavalier, bail-out-the-world style attitude, equity markets are just, eh, no problem. You know, yeah, we're up 1%. Microsoft had good earnings. And so the point of the article is, like many of my other articles, is there's going to be a blow-off valve somewhere, right? Because in a world where interest rates, equity prices, uh, and, you know, whatever, say those are the only two macro variables that we have. When, when one goes up, the other one goes down. End of story, full stop. And it's only when you introduce a billion other variables and you start tweaking with all them that you can get these things to do these fucky things that they're doing now, which is the market going up as we put another bank into receivership. So what do you guys think will be the blow-off valve uh, where eventually all this all this turmoil surfaces? I mean, I think it'll be gold, but talk to me. Andy, you go first. I got I to gotta think that one through. <laughs> Well, you know, one of the things that I think isn't being talked about enough is at the end of, of 2022, the FDIC had $128 billion invested in treasuries. That was their asset base. And the Fed just loaned them $173 billion. So explain to me, unless I'm missing something, how is it that people aren't freaking out that the Fed is, in essence, bailing out the FDIC and everyone talks about having all of the money in these accounts at two fifty dollars apiece and spreading it around and having the insurance Yet, in essence, the FDIC is insolvent. And when you talk about just what the, is going to happen inside the system here, you got the reverse repo market paying uh, a, a rate that is enticing everyone to leave the regional banks. They're going to blow up the regional banks. There's no mm -hmm. question about it. Everyone is leaving the regional banks because Janet told us that they won't be safe unless it's an uber majority of the FDIC, the FOMC herself, and the president in order to decide if indeed they are systemic enough. And yet they're continuing to uh, quantitatively tighten, roll off. There's going to be a whole other big swath of bonds that roll off here mid-month. Rates are going to continue to rise. They're paying more money at the, at the, at the too-big-to-fail uh, commercial banks in, in money market accounts, which is all going directly into the overnight repo market, reverse repo market, paying a rate higher than you, you can get in a CD at a bank, and those CDs are time-locked, whereas here you have daily liquidity in these commercial banks. They are attempting, I think, to blow up the regional banks, which are responsible for 70% of all the small business loans and the majority of all of the commercial real estate loans it's this is a system that i think at some point people have to wake up to what's happening here and, and when that happens there where else do you go 
besides gold and silver. And and I try to be objective. Yes, I own a precious metals company, but I try to be objective. Where do you go in a system where rising rates is going to inversely impact stocks, bonds, and real estate, and you have a Federal Reserve that is aiding and abetting the destruction of the regional banking system? And if it's really difficult when I look at everything that I've been talking about, whether it being the weaponizing of the dollar or the aiding and abetting of the destruction of the regional banks to think is this intended or not or are the people pulling the strings that stupid to think that the consequences of their actions are are going to be so benign that it's really no big deal but in essence it seems to be the only thing that i see that is fueling <clears throat> this exodus out of what is considered a safe haven in the in these regional banks Chris, i think the i think you nailed the answer to the question the answer to your question is is the blow-off valve is the value of the currency and the easiest measure of the value of the currency is against a sound currency, which is gold. And, you know, it's very interesting to me that gold is bumping up against this 2000 level. And a lot of things have happened that, you know, in terms of the decrease in the tip spread and a lot of other things that should have brought gold back down, but it hasn't. They haven't. And gold is just bumping against this 2000. And as I'm sure Andy would agree, when we take out 2100 with authority, it's game on. Because at that point in time, the whole world is set up to trade on algos and, and breakouts and so on and so forth. And that will be a, a clear breakout, historical breakout. Gold has never traded above 20, at 2100 or above. And when that occurs, you know, we're going to squirt up to 2500 or 3000 very, very quickly. And I think we're on the cusp of that occurring. And the reason that's occurring is what you pointed out, Chris. There's got to be a, a release valve to what they're doing. I mean, they just cannot continue to spend and print and, and assume that that's their only solution. I mean, you know, hey, even Gunlack, it was in my letter, even Gunlack, who was a bond guy, said, you know, the Fed is a one-trick pony. They got one thing they can do, and that's print money. And, you know, and he recommends buying gold. This is a bond guy. He's, he managed a $90 billion bond portfolio. I'm sure he's in short duration because he's smart. But, <laughs> right, uh, you know, so, I mean, I, I think you nailed it. You nailed the answer. Well, I think, and I think that's a good, like, key point, too, right, that, What's been the MO over the last 18 months? It's been when the Fed takes a hawkish stance, gold dives. And mm. when Fed comes off, like when Powell said uh, at the one conference, you know, he kind of alluded to being bullish or um, sorry, dovish rather, that gold would kind of turn upwards. And here we are with the Fed kind of maintaining their stance. The, the whole thing with the timing is fascinating to me because People act as though just because the Fed is going to hike 25 and then pause, that that's some type of dovish, you know, easing all of a sudden. When mm. the, the fact is, we're past redlining interest rates. The economy mm. just, you know, aside from the bank collapses that we're starting to see, the economy isn't really showing it in any uh, way that's uh, super alarming, but that'll probably be coming but yeah, I mean, rates are still on the rise. They're slated to rise another 25 basis points. And gold is acting, instead of kind of walking back to the barn, it's acting like a horse that just smoked a bunch of meth waiting to get out of the starting gate. I mean, <laughs> you know, this, this bumping up against the 2000 mark is like, you know, it's like a fucking horse at Santa Anita. You ever see a fine mess, that old movie with Ted Danson where they shove the fucking steroids up the horse's ass and the thing, yeah. you know, runs the last quarter mile at Santa Anita backwards and still wins the race? Like, that's what the horse looks like it's ready to do if you're gold. And so uh, what is the gold market telling you right now with its price action, Andy? 
Well, I mean, let's not forget that right now you have pretty damn close to the highest concentrated short position by the commercial banks in the gold market ever. They're holding it back as best as they can, while at the exact same time, the central banks of the world are using that against us. They've accumulated more gold in the 18, last 18 months than just about ever in the history. And when you talk about using the suppression of the Western gold market or the COMEX against us, that's exactly what these big institutions are doing. They're massively accumulating. And to Larry's point, if the Fed is just a one-trick pony in a world where the dollar has no, if they can only inflate in a world where the dollar has no alternatives, it, you can do that. And we've done that forever. But when you get to a point where countries like Saudi Arabia who are now partnering with, you know, what amounts to close to 80% of human population and being right. protected by Russia and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is the largest regional military group in the world, when you have all of these pieces being put together, little by little by little by little by little, everywhere you look, there is going to be an alternative because why would you want to sell anything for a dollar that has been proven to they're going to inflate. That's the only path they can take. It's inflator to fall. Andy, I'd be curious to know because you're in the business. I mean, I've, and I've heard anecdotally stories talked to my coin dealer and others. Can you comment on how much the volumes post Silicon Valley bank, what happened to the order book in your business? Can you tell I, us? I, it's the craziest thing, Larry, in my entire career. We've added 13,000 clients in the past 35 days. And, and I mean, um, give me a sense years, in terms of kind of order of magnitude, you were running at one and then what did the run rate go to? Uh, to to infinity. We were working 18 <laughs> hours a day for the past, literally since that day, it slowed down a little bit over the last week, but pretty damn close to 18 <laughs> hours a day, seven days a week. And that's God's honest truth. And I've never seen anything like it because, you know, when you look at silver squeeze as an example, and by the way, post silver squeeze, <laughs> the amount of silver in the Comex vault is the lowest it's ever been post silver squeeze. It's being drained. They're using the price, the smart money, who is closest to the information, are, they're draining the exchanges and using the suppression to do it. However, when you compare it to Silver Squeeze, it was people buying to make money, profit, wrong reason. <clears throat> and now, when you look at the anxiety that has been created by the, by the Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, and even more so by Janet Yellen's testimony to the representative from Oklahoma, it has fueled a level of anxiety that I've never seen before in my life and or in my 30 year career. And the, uh, the volume is notable the charts. Completely notable. Yeah. So look, you know, going back to what you're saying, Andy, do you think it's going to be like one day we're just going to wake up because look, yes. given, given the choice, if it's a brand new game and we all come to the table and, and there's no past history with any country, any, you know, politics, uh, and you come to the table and there's two parties and one of which has a debt-based system where all they do is issue dollars and the other one has a golden commodity backed system. And <clears throat> let's just say, let's say they're getting close to equal when it comes to uh, footing militarily, when it comes to footing uh, in terms of population. I mean, obviously I think they have the population advantage over the West, but uh, <clears throat> why would you choose the debt-based system where all we do is print paper. And do you think that it's going to be a situation where we just wake up one day and all of a sudden, it, you know, it has become the obvious choice f 
for the world to to kind of like is it even a choice don't doesn't doesn't the world at some point have to just hit this turning point where it does adopt the commodity and and gold based backed system yeah, again I mean, chris what you're describing is kind of hemingway's you know slowly then all at once and it was stunning to me how quickly silicon valley bank failed 42 billion withdrawn one day and 100 billion requested the next day of course they couldn't meet it and and that's why you know this is i've often thought that there is some probability and i think it's probably within a three-year window I and mean, we've got a couple more up and down waves in my opinion before we hit that end one but i think at some point in time you know i mean humans are herd animals you know we're all in the right. same theater somebody yells fire everybody smells smoke and then everybody wants out all at once right and right. and you know it yeah I mean, and, and you know, Larry, gold, gold Larry, goes up that, that gold was an argument, $100 a day. That right. was an argument we were making before all of this geopolitical turmoil started dividing the world, right? So we were right. talking about this shit for the last decade, about right. the fact that at some point the world is going to wake up one day and realize that we're going to need a, a gold back or commodity back system, and it's just common sense. And then you have COVID, you have the blowing out of the fucking money supply, and you have, like you guys both said, the absconding with the Russian FX reserves and the weaponization of the dollar. And now all of a sudden, Andy, I don't know if you saw this as well, last week, 19 new countries applying to join BRICS. So, it, 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 Go ahead. No, of course I have. Yeah, no, I've, I've been on top of that forever. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, I, I mean, go ahead. I mean, look, the, the, you know, the bond market, the U.S. bond market, you know, could get entirely sold. And one of the things the Fed is doing is they're really playing with fire with this tight monetary policy and what they're doing now because they may be solving their problem in the short run, but they're, they're compounding their problem in the long run because when it becomes clear that, um, that nobody's going to want to hold this stuff and that interest rates are going up relentlessly, they're going to be forced into reversing their policies, instituting yield curve control. And that's what we're seeing here, that every one of these swings gets bigger from, you know, from in, in the first swing, you know, we went from an $800 billion Fed balance sheet to $4 trillion. Then we, Now we went from $4 trillion to $9 trillion. My belief is the next one will take us from $9 trillion to $25 trillion. You know, and, and at that point in time, as people see these swings gaining in size and magnitude, and as the credibility of the people managing the money continues to decrease, and by the way, I think it's decreasing enormously as we speak, but it's about to decrease even more, you know, eventually everyone, I mean, Hyper, I've studied a lot of hyperinflations, and the one thing you can be sure of is that they occur when everybody becomes convinced that there is no way out except for printing of the currency. Then, you know, massive Gresham's Law kicks in, and everyone wants out as quickly as possible. You know, in Weimar, they were getting paid, and they were spending, they were converting their wages into goods within hours because they knew the next day the prices would be higher. And that's how it happens. And that is, in my opinion, that actually is in our future. I don't think it's happening tomorrow, but that's where we're headed if history is any guide. And this is really more of a mathematical and engineering problem and, you know, and, and related to a, a psychology problem. Um, but, you know, I don't think it would matter who's in control. I, I, think, I think it's kind of inevitable because, you know, people will do what they're going to do and, and everyone can read the signals and the signals will be there. Well, yeah. Not only that, but just when you're talking about you mentioned 19 countries. Look, you got the G7 right now sanctioning over 30 countries. You got the members, according to Bloomberg, just Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, just those countries alone, according to Bloomberg, 
um, will outpace the G7 in terms of contribution to economic growth. In fact, they come out and say that BRICS will contribute 32.1% and the G7 is 29.9%. But when you talk about the countries that, you know, you got uh, Algeria, Argentina, United Arab Emirates, Nicaragua, Turkey, Indonesia, Senegal, Nigeria, Afghanistan, Egypt, Kazakhstan, and of course Saudi Arabia, you have Mexico who has applied to the BRICS nations. You have Jim Willie out there saying that Japan and Canada are thinking about doing it in New Zealand and Australia. You have all of these countries that are, are talking about self-preservation and, and, and jumping ship. When you look at some of the countries that have expressed interest to joining the BRICS and or are already on the Belt Road Initiative, listen to the gold holdings as a percentage of their reserves as they de-dollarize Venezuela 82%, Uzbekistan 65%, Kazakhstan 63%, Bolivia 55%, Belarus 40%, Turkey who just bought more gold in the last 18 months than anyone in the world, 29%. So the numbers are, are really, really increasing in terms of not only those that want to join the BRICS and those that we are being told are planning on joining the BRICS. There's over 60 countries that they have lined up in a queue, all regionally associated with the countries that are already applying. This is a trend in motion. And to your point, Chris, yes, I do believe It'll be on a Sunday night, Monday morning. You will have all the countries who represent OPEC. Every one of them are on the Belt Road Initiative. And, you know, people don't talk about that one feature enough. Why are they all on the Belt Road, including the ones in, 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 in South America? What does it really mean? And if you look at it from a Saudi perspective, first they, they sign a military agreement with Russia. Now they've joined the, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. In essence, you could make the, the, the statement and joining BRICS that they're being protected by Russia and by China at the very least. And they then come out and say on a Sunday night, thanks for the memories. It's been great. We're now taking other currencies for oil and everything blows up Monday morning. All markets are, are limit down because it's a, it's a tsunami of dollars if you realize that you know, what, what Brent talks about is real. Every country in the world has had to own dollars for the last 50 years in order to buy oil. But what happens if that changes? What happens if, if Saudi Arabia says, we're done, thank you, you guys have told us you're going green. The 85% of the world that encompasses the BRICS, the Belt Road Initiative, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and the Eurasian Economic Union, they're not, and they have my back, our back. OPEC's back, and all of us brothers and sisters on, on the Belt Road Initiative, all 18 or 14 of us, us OPEC-producing countries have decided to make a change. And whatever that change is, you know, you got guys like Alistair McLeod saying that the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which represents close to 60% of the Eurasian landmass, wants to issue a gold-backed settlement currency for the entire Eurasian landmass. The BRICS have told us they want to issue a commodity-backed currency you can already buy the petro yuan bond and convert it into gold on the shanghai gold exchange there are options and whenever that statement is made and if you look at it like you're playing a a board game you know the pieces are being put into place and when they make that announcement there will be no time for anyone to react and it will be on a sunday night and ask yourself why the hell if price was such a, a indicator of value why the hell would the central banks be buying more gold at any time ever right. in the history of, of <clears throat> markets? Why? Right. Because they know what's coming. They are front running. They don't care about uh, the, the technicals or any of that stuff in this market. They are using the suppression of the Western 
markets who suppress gold to support the bond market, they are using that against us to de-dollarize and, and put the pieces into place. And bang, when they say we're done taking dollars, that tsunami, that inflate, that tsunami of inflation will hit the shores here quickly. And what does that look like? That's the one piece that a lot of the other people who are talking about this aren't talking about enough. What does that look like when the world completely and totally sheds dollars because no one needs them any longer to buy oil? And that, to me, is, is the frightening moment. And I do think it happens on a Monday morning. To, to, go ahead, Larry. I was going to say it's somewhat similar to, um, you know, when, when the pound lost its reserve status against the U.S. dollar. And there's, a, there's a parallel there. Um, but I think in this case it'll be the dollar losing its status against gold. Um, and I, I, I completely agree with Andy. I mean, at a minimum, there's going to be massive U.S. inflation. I mean, if, if the dollar, let's let's just say hypothetically, I mean, the dollar doesn't go to zero, but let's say in the next two years it loses half its value, so to speak, in gold terms. You know, gold goes to 4000 I mean, you know, is, is everyone ready for 8 9 $10 gasoline prices? Because that's what it would apply. Well, Larry, I mean, what happens to interest rates in that environment? Well, that's right. And interest rates go much, much higher. As a result of that, nobody's willing to lend in, in dollar terms. And then the Fed says, oh, you know, we can't have that happening. You know, yield curve control comes in. I mean, the whole thing falls apart very, very quickly, and it gets quite ugly and nasty. And and for, sadly, nobody in the United States, you know, is, is even thinking about this. I mean, in, in terms of U.S. policymakers, um, you know, they, they appear to be completely asleep at the switch. Yeah, that's what's completely fucked up. And I actually have that written. I've got a list of things I wanted to ask you guys, but I'm jotting down notes as we're talking. And one thing that I just wrote down while we were saying this is, are we fear mongers or is Biden clueless? That was the note I just wrote to myself. <laughs> well, because, uh, how because, about a third because, option to that, though? How about how about how about letter C option C? And that is when they about. came out when they came out and said that Putin, it was Putin's inflation. To me, it signaled they're looking for a villain because you don't have to study uh, Austrian economics more than 30 seconds to know that every single time inflation is a monetary event. So they're right. blaming Putin. So does that mean that when they when they weaponize the dollar and see the reactions of the rest of the world, they're going to, instead of falling on the sword, they're going to blame Xi Jinping and, and Putin and OPEC for blowing up the way of life. Yeah, but that's what, what the, the fuck that, are we going to do, though? You know what I mean? It's like they can blame whoever. They can blame the fairy fucking godmother if they want. It's not going to change the, the... Because it's the only way to reset the system. It, you, If the system has to be reset, they, they just came out with the 2022 balance sheet. Social Security in and of itself is $77 trillion underfunded, and Reuters said it's bankrupt by 2033. $77 trillion, a trillion seconds ago was 31,688 years ago. How do we pay this off? That doesn't even include Medicare, Medicaid, and government military pensions, or the $31 trillion but what are, debt. But Andy, what are we going to reset? You know what I mean? Like We're going to reset our, our half of the world, but the other half of the world isn't going isn't gonna to reset, so it's just us you know, pounding our own putt at some point, right? Well, that's pretty much it and the only the only other thing that comes to my mind is a report that came out by the imf not too long ago that said gold a barbarous relic or gold an international reserve currency a barbarous <laughs> relic no more so maybe they understand that that's you, you reset you blow everything up you find a villain you issue a new cbdc backed by gold the only other tier one reserve asset could that be the case i don't know maybe but all i'm trying to simply say is that i the more I dig through this, it just either becomes our leaders are completely 
completely incompetent or they've chosen the path of finding a villain to blow the whole system up. I can't see, and, and in, in furthering it, looking at the actions they're making with the banking system, they are exacerbating and aiding and abetting the destruction of this whole system. And maybe I'm being, like you said, fear-mongering, but it just keeps coming back to my, in the back of my mind, why would they do these things if to not create a reaction? Well, and also there's the chance that they're just dumb, you know, which that, I, I don't I think go. we should put past them either, because when... Whoever it was, maybe it was Elizabeth Warren, I can't remember, but whoever it was came out and blamed crypto for the Silicon Valley bank collapse. I think they were doing it legitimately. I think there was probably a small thread under there of we can't let the dollar have any competitors, maybe 5% of the argument. But I think 95% of the argument just came from fucking straight up, dumber than a second coat of paint, fucking, you know, Ross Gerber, Kathy Wood style thinking, which is just find the worst possible, you know, solution and, and implement that. And just idiocy. And I think that that's probably unfortunately sadly the leading scenario here when it comes to uh whether or not you know because they will no doubt they will not take responsibility right they will blame somebody but they'll do it after the fact like they did with inflation you know they come around with this oh putin's price hike you know some fucking focus group somewhere had to think of that stupid term and said oh we'll just do you know we'll well, it's three words, and it's easy to remember. It's like, you know, build back better. Some political pack focus group came out and said, we'll, we'll tell them it's Putin's price hiking. You got all these fucking dumbasses out there parroting it. It's not inflation. It's Putin's price hike. It's like, you know, at some point, how fucking stupid do you think the American people are at some point? And they, they will do the same thing here. I think they'll do it after the fact. What do you think, Larry? I completely agree with that. I mean, I... A lot of people subscribe, you know, evil, evil, you know, uh, intent to some of these people. I think some of them are rather smart and evil, but I think a lot of them, um, you know, are, are just plain stupid. And uh, you can't, you know, you can't discount that. So it, it, it's my opinion that, you know, they and, they, and they're just reacting, you know, day to day, event to event, election to election. You know, nobody's thinking strategically in long term. Um, and, and that's and that's tragic because it's going to put us in a real thing. In terms of whether or not we're fear-mongering, I wanted to touch upon that one. I mean, look, you know, we're, we're not saying and guaranteeing that what we're saying is going to happen, but, you know, if one studies the arc of history and one looks at historical parallels, we are doing all the things that weak countries have done before they either had massive inflation or defaulted. I mean, this is not what, you know... The only thing that's new about this episode is that it's occurring at the largest country in the world with the biggest military and the reserve currency. Right. Everything else about what we're doing, it's been done in Argentina, Weimar, Israel, Brazil, uh, Russia, China, you know, post Mao. I mean, you name it. Um, currency events have happened. You know, there have been 100 of them in the last, you know, 200 years. And they've all led to massive inflation and default. And the only difference this time is it's being done at the level of the biggest country or the biggest reserve currency asset country, you know, the United States. But, but, you know, if you look at those mathematical facts associated with what we're doing, they're incontrovertible and they just, they are, I mean, we, we cannot get out of this death spiral. There's no way this, this money can be paid back in real terms. No way. Every, every baby born in the United States today has, you know, $800,000 of, of debt on, on his or her head. You know, it's, it's compounding. It's got to be paid back. I mean, it's just, it's not going to happen. They have to destroy the currency if they want to keep the system going. 
And sadly, they will. I mean, uh, you know, the, the correct thing to do would be to do a reset, you know, redistribute the assets, return to sound money. That's the correct answer. But that's not even being kicked around or talked about. I mean, we're so far away from even thinking about that. They're all still in the denial. We don't have a problem stage. And of course, we've got an enormous problem. It, it just—it's very clear. Well, and it's... Or, or are they trying to foster a reset and find a villain? I mean, and that's the question. I mean, you know, in in both scenarios, you come up with the same answer. What is the solution? You reset. Well, one way you fall on the sword; the other way you find a villain. And that's the part that I have a very hard time really coming to grips with. Is this? Is this something that has been thought out because they come to the same conclusion you do, Larry, that there is no way to pay this off rather than resetting and redistributing and starting over? Well, I mean, after all, that is what Klaus Schwab said. So when you create an environment where assets have been blown to the highest level ever based upon suppressed interest rates and easy money, if you're going to blow things up, it's going to have a catastrophic effect from coming from this level. and and it just, I keep coming back to the reality of if you, if us three can see the consequences of these actions, why would it not be plausible to think that they see it too and have chosen that as the least painful solution in, in a painful outcome, no matter what? Well, that's a great well, question, some, but, but you know what I do. Go ahead, Larry. Yeah. No, 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 I was just going to say, I think some certainly do. Go ahead, Chris. I was just going to say, it's a great question, but when I go through my Rolodex, okay, and I've been doing this. For I've been, you know, on FinTwit and fucking around with finance for 10 years now, 12 years probably. When I look at my Rolodex and I think, you know, I want to do the podcast where I have the echo chamber and I find the people that think like I do and ultimately come somewhere near the same type of conclusion, which unfortunately sounds like a worst case scenario, but only because it seems likely, not because I'm just trying to root for the, you know, famine, plague, and pestilence. You two are the only two names that come up. So, you know, is it that difficult to... What's up with that? Like, <laughs> how come we're the only people talking about this? Well, you've got, I mean, to, to be fair, you've actually got other people talking about it. I mean, you know, and, and some of them I know are, you know, are Bitcoiners, but I mean, you know, Jeff Booth gets it. Preston Pish gets it. Um, you know, Luke Roman gets it. I mean, there right. there are a group of people out there who get it, and and even even the Druckenmillers of the world get it. You know, and and, and are talking about it. And um, you know, a lot of them say it in hushed tones, and they're kind of careful about it, and they don't want to. You know, I mean, hell, I think even Dalio gets it. Um, you know, but they, you know, everyone knows that this involves going into a place that's going to be very societally difficult. And so I, I think, you know, nobody wants to talk about the potential bad news. And, you know, I, I kind of understand that. Um, my view would be if you, see a, if you see a catastrophe coming, why not try and get in front of it and start crafting solutions and think about how you avoid it? But, you know, I'm, I'm old-fashioned in that respect. <laughs> well, and you have a moral compass, which I think probably sets you apart from some people in office. Let me ask you a question, Andy. I was at the bar uh, last week as all of my questions start. And I bumped into a guy, a uh, very nice guy who listened to the podcast. who was a former, uh, former floor trader in Chicago, uh, used to trade, I think in the gold and silver pits, he was telling me, but one of the things that I asked him, uh, in my stupor was whether or not all of the, um, whether or not all the hubbub about Comex and the, 
paper claims on physical gold and the large bank manipulation of the gold markets, uh, those quote-unquote conspiracy theories, which are probably conspiracy facts, whether those were true and whether, and he knew all about it. And he didn't, without missing a beat, was able to tell me off the cuff, oh yeah, the big banks are in trouble. The big banks have these, you know, have amassed these huge short positions. And, you know, I know you talk a lot about this, but this is something that even in the gold and silver community, Andy, and speaking frankly to you, I mean, you get ridiculed for, I've seen it, and I've, in private conversations with Austrians, people have told me Andy Schechtman is nuts. He has, you know, he's been pushing this same conspiracy theory about fucking silver, about synthetic shorts, about paper claims on, on physical gold for, you know, X amount of years. Um, how come this floor trader seemed to get it so well, Andy, but some other people don't really get it? And, and I'd like both of your takes just on uh, the paper markets versus the physical markets. Uh, it, it drives me crazy. Chris, I mean, I don't care what people say. I, I, it just it drives me crazy. It's irrefutable. I mean, look, okay, so J.P. Morgan pays a $920 million fine to the Justice Department for suppressing the, the, the market, the precious metals market. Since, uh, since early 2021, let's talk about silver, COMEX inventories have fallen from 400 million ounces to 271 million ounces that's 130 million ounces that have disappeared over the past 28 months that's 4.6 million ounces per month are disappearing off of the exchange and it is because the biggest money in the world sees exactly what is coming if you look right now on comex you can anybody explain to me why the commercial banks right now hold the largest short position in gold that they've ever had what are they trying to hold back at a period of time when the central banks are buying more than at any time in history? Why? The point of it is, is that there's a term in economics called Gibson's paradox, which speaks to the inverse relationship between real interest rates and the price of gold. And that has been the main driver of, of precious metal uh, suppression for a very long time. And maybe that's why you're seeing the, the big money, pull the metal off of the exchange before this whole thing blows up because the the commercial banks have dug a, a fairly large hole for themselves, I think, if this thing whole, if this entire thing blows up. And I do think it's going to blow up based upon watching the, the withdrawal, not only off of COMEX, but the LBMA and the massive withdrawal off of the ETFs. Anyone who says that the markets are not controlled, all I want to say to you is just look at a graph of the AM and the PM fix over the last 10 years. Every single day, the AM and the PM fix is lower. Every single time there's bad news and the market starts to to heat up in the price of gold, the commercial banks come in and squash it. All the time at options expirations, they come in and squash it. If it were just the rinse, wash, and repeat, Okay, fine. That's bad enough, and that and that reeks of manipulation. But at the exact same time that the price is being suppressed, the biggest money in the world is literally draining the exchanges. There's only 30 million ounces on registered category right now. That's it. 30 million ounces. I think they're at the end of the ability to suppress the price when a country like India imported 10 times that amount last year. It's desperation mode. They have yeah. been suppressing the market, no question. Yeah, Chris, I got a lot to say on this. I mean, Andy is dead ass right. I mean, 
the 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 evidence that the the price of gold has been um, manipulated downward is just irrefutable. And I encourage people to go to gata.org, G-A-T-A.org, and look at what Chris Powell and, and Bill Murphy have put together, you know, for the last 15 years. The documentation, it's unparalleled, and it's, again, it's just totally irrefutable. There are, this is a big game of musical chairs where there are 100 claims on every ounce of real physical gold, in my opinion, in the world. And when the music stops and some people think they have gold and they ask for it, they don't get it, the price of gold is going to do a moonshot. And so... To me, it, it, it's very clear, and it all started, it's interesting that um, Annie referenced Barsky, the um, Gibson's Paradox, which is a paper that was written by Barsky and Summers way back in the 1990s when Clinton was president, and the whole, the whole notion back then was Carville said, you know, I want to be the bond market when I come back because I'll have all the power in the world, and, and Robert Rubin was smart enough to pick up on that paper and figure out that the way to create economic good times was to print money but to not have the inflation alarms go off. And, they, and that they looked at the 70s and they knew that gold was the inflation alarm. In fact, in Volcker's, te- in Volcker's um, autobi- you know, autobiography or memoirs, he said the one mistake they made in the 70s was not working harder to suppress the gold price, you know, that let the inflation get out of control. And so, you know, they, they learned that lesson. And, you know, Rubin um, came from Jay Aaron before he went to Goldman Sachs. And so he was a commodities trader. And they basically just figured out how to corrupt the gold market with paper gold. And so I'm sure that they had offshore accounts and it was a matter of national security that they were able to, when, when gold price went up too much and it looked like it was going in the wrong direction, they would just come in with big paper contracts and sell. And to the degree they took losses, you know, they would print that back door. So there, there's absolutely no doubt. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is an economic fact that the gold price has been suppressed. I mean, I don't know if you know, but, you know, back in the 70s, you could take, the amount of, you know, one of the monetary aggregates, maybe take the, the biggest one at the time, say M, M1 as a start, and you could divide by the number of ounces we theoretically hold in Fort Knox. I don't think we do, but, and you could come up with some number close to the $35, which was the Bretton Woods reference price. Of course, in the late 60s, it got higher than that because of the Vietnam War. But, but the point is, if you did that math today, if you took the monetary aggregates today and divided by the ounces of gold that we have today, the price of gold would need to be $80,000 an ounce to make the two balance. So that's an indication of how much money has been printed and how much the economic value of the money has drifted away from the underlying gold price. I mean, it's, it's, it's beyond absurd. I mean, gold really just has no monetary role. I mean, I always laugh at Bitcoin. I said, well, you know, Bitcoin is going to demonetize gold. I said, guys, gold has already been demonetized. I mean, gold is really just a, it's like, it's like iron ore. You know, they sell it at a price that's, that gives them a profit for mining it, and that's it. There's no premium for its monetary role. But there, there's no doubt. If you look at the GATA evidence, and if you look at all the things, I've been watching this market since the mid-'90s. Um, the evidence of, of manipulation is overwhelming. Hey, let yeah. me just speak to that real quick, too, if yeah. you don't mind. Because as far as, as Chris and Bill, we anyone who owns metals owes GATA and La Metropole and Bill and Chris a a debt of gratitude absolutely all the time and when you look at that report that barsky and and uh, summers wrote and i think they won all sorts of economic awards for it, gibson's paradox revisited they completely understood the inverse relationship between real interest rates and gold and the way that they did it back then was that they would the central banks would lease their gold to the commercial banks at at a very 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 small rate half a percent those commercial banks had two obligations. Number one, sell the gold to the market, drive the price down, short it. Number two, take the proceeds of those short sales and buy treasuries. They got to keep the spread between the two. 
So buying treasuries would lower interest rates, smashing gold at the same time by suppressing the market. Being told to do this from the people above gave them immunity. And there was a lawsuit that Reg Howe, who was part of, I believe, GATA, brought against uh, Larry Summers, actually named him in the lawsuit, and, and several of the banks. And when it went to dis- it was it was it was going to discovery, and, and at the time they had American Barrick was named in the lawsuit as well as being an agent for the Federal Reserve that was doing this. And the the judge in New Orleans um, came out and said, "No, we're going to go to discovery. There's more to it than meets the eye because the the counsel for Barrick said we move for dismissal. This is bullshit." Well, they said, "No, it's going to go to discovery." And although the the case was sealed. Two things we take away from it. Number one, Barrett came out and said, okay, fine, we you got us, we did it. But we've been told to do this at the behest of J.P. Morgan, who had been told to do it at the behest of the U.S. government. And they have sovereign immunity, and by extension, we claim sovereign immunity. And number two, Barrick agreed as a, as, a, uh, as a condition of the settlement to close their hedge book, to not forward sell anymore on behalf of this agreement. They admitted, they admitted that they were doing this. But the whole reason for doing it is that if you create an environment of suppressed interest rates, and that's really the culprit in all of this, the distortions that have been created by suppression of interest rates had to be had to kill. They had to kill the canary. And that was the price of gold. And and, And that's where it all started. Before that, it was the London gold pool. It's the exact same thing. It's it's the dollar is the is the wizard and the wizard of Oz and gold pulls back the the screen and sees it's a little old frail man. They've always had to step on gold and silver. And that's exactly why. And the people who say that it isn't suppressed, there's um, a guy, I'm going to try to think of his name here in a second. And I got to send you his graph. I used to give a speech and I would use his graph and I'm going to come to me in a second, but he took 10 years worth of data and put it together showing the AM and the PM fix in 10 okay. years worth of data in one graph. Yeah. Do you know his name? I don't. I'm wondering, is it the, was it the guy from Bullion Star over in Singapore? No, it's, oh. not, it's not him, and I'll think of it in a second. It always comes to me. But he showed, if you take all 3,000 trading days in one graph, every single time AM and PM fix came, it got smashed. They suppress gold and silver to make the Western well, I mean, system. Look it's just than common that. sense. I mean, who would who would dump you know a couple thousand, couple hundred tons of gold at three in the morning when the trading is the thinnest? Do you know what I mean? Of I mean, course. Just... Let, me, let me explain one other thing. <laughs> to that point, I asked so Larry, if I have five thousand ounces in my warehouse, I'll sell five thousand ounces on Comex to to support to to remain market neutral. Mm. Uh, if one goes up, the other goes down. So we're always market neutral in our inventory as a, as a precious metals dealer. I asked my head trader about a month ago. I said, Ryan, how much does it cost for us to control a 100-ounce gold contract? He said, it's 7000 bucks in our margin account. That's it. The trade's just a few bucks. So what if I'm a commercial bank with $500 million or a central bank in my margin account? I now control $15 billion in, in notional gold and silver. So you suppress the shit out of the price. You gobble up all the physical you can find everywhere, including share redemptions through SLV and GLD, which are very, very, very opaque, including buying up physical all around the globe. And then you reach into your pocket and you grab more money and cover your shorts. When does that end? That ends 
when the people who take the other side of that trade demand delivery. Now, if you look what happened two, three weeks ago, what did J.P. Morgan do? They put millions of ounces into the registered category of silver, pushing it up to 39 million. What's it at now? 30. Where did those 9 million ounces go? They didn't put that money from eligible into registered to suppress the price or to to um, uh, continue this game. What they did is someone said, no, 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 I want delivery. And they put seven or eight million ounces of silver into registered that's now gone and when it leaves comex it ain't ever coming back because it's <laughs> it's it, it's too hard to get it reintroduced and assayed and yeah. and you lose all of the industrial liquidity so whoever is draining the exchanges is front running what is coming next and i'll tell you one other thing larry if you had a client who said to me i want a hundred million in gold in silver it would be easier to come to me than to actually pull that stuff off of Comex to go through it and have the zero liquidity, it would be easier to buy that on the retail basis. Whoever is doing this, not only is it very, very wealthy, but they're very, very sophisticated and they have intentions of it never coming back to Comex ever again. I know that to be true. It's hard. I took delivery of two contracts back in the 90s. It was really something. Right, and then you have a 400-ounce or a 100-ounce gold bar or a 1,000-ounce silver bar that's super illiquid. These countries don't care. They're sending it eastward. And where do you think India came up with 300 million ounces of silver when there's only 270 million in the entire COMEX universe, of which only 30 million is available for sale? Yeah. Yep, and at some point, the music just stops. I think that's right. I think that's right, and as and you know, as Luke Roman says, you know, gold and silver don't trade in the same zip code when that occurs. But if you I, were, look, I've always, if I've you, always thought of that as a possibility. If you were doing like we were talking about earlier, right? If you're these BRICS nations and you really want to put try to put the screws to the West at some point, and you want to, like I said, you want to get the board set up so that when the opposing player just wakes up, all they see is mate and one, and there's nothing that they can do. They might as well just give up. And you know, yeah. and that's, that's how thoughtful I think some of these nations are. And so, you know, this fits right into that uh, modus operandi, right? What would you be doing? You would be taking delivery of huge sums, and, and like Andy says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to them that it's a liquid because, you know, it's – they want it to be a liquid. They're not going to be out there dealing in it. They want to have it to sit on it. And uh, what I want to ask you both is, you know, for like a retail investor, for somebody that's in the GLD or the SLV, you know, <laughs> what does it mean to hold those ETFs versus holding physical versus, sorry if you can hear the sirens. I live on fucking I-95. Um, what does it mean to be holding those ETFs? Hang on. Mother. All you need to do is read pages 6 through 12 of the prospectus titled Risk Factors. Read it twice with a glass of bourbon. Read it twice and you'll never own those stock, those ETFs ever again. I think the bourbon we don't have to worry about with my listeners. They're probably on top of that already. But if you guys could just explain what's the difference between owning physical, why they should or shouldn't own that ETF, what about maybe things like the Sprott ETFs? And then what about miners, you know, uh, minor ETFs, individual miners, juniors, seniors? What do you think? I'll take a quick stab at this, and I'll let Larry talk more about the miners. But in terms of the ETFs, um, the only one that I would ever own, ever, 
would be the Sprott ETFs, the PHY or the Physical Trust, PHYS, PSLV. Not only are they closed-end funds, they're run by an honorable guy. And, and it's a whole different system than GLD and SLV. <clears throat> GLD and SLV, to me, is what the government will use if they ever want to confiscate gold and silver. In the prospectus, it doesn't give you the right to take it possession of it unless you own a tremendous amount like $18 million worth to begin with in gold. You have to own a basket of gold and or silver. It's basically the commercial banks and the large funds who have the ability to redeem metal out of GLD and SOB, which they can stop at any time. But if you read the prospectus, it says that the custodian has the right to use subcustodians and that they are not responsible for the errors and or omissions of the subcustodians, that they cannot visit the premises of where the subcustodians sell the, uh, store their metal. And if indeed the metal that is being held by the subcustodians does not meet London Good Delivery standards, that they are not liable for it. They have distanced themselves so tremendously from fraud. But think about it. You have two funds that attract all the big investment money. If they wanted to confiscate gold, everyone says they're going to pull a 33. They're going to know in 33 everyone owned gold and silver. How about Who's, who is the administrator of the world's largest silver trust? Oh, yeah, the guys that just paid a $920 million fine for suppressing the market. That's smart. <laughs> so they run SLV. Who, who's the, who controls um, GLD? Oh, yeah, the, comp the bank that's paid more fines than just about any commercial bank in the world, HSBC. So on a Friday night, they could confiscate those two funds, pay everyone whatever they had in their account, put it in their money market, and look the world in the face and say, wait a minute, we didn't confiscate. You can still own physical gold in this country. We closed two ETFs. So to me, GLD and SLV are some of the worst products ever, not to mention the massive short position. And that's something to talk about in SLV because that short position has gone way, way, way down over the last couple of weeks. But it was like, I don't know, 80 million ounces. It was some crazy, crazy, crazy amount of short position in silver on the ETF, which you shouldn't be able to short an ETF, but they did something's happening there because that short position has been cut by about 80 percent so something's going on there but the bottom line is you do not want to own gld and slv and furthermore when you sell it you're taxed at the 28 percent collectible rate as if you owned physical metal everything about it sucks if you're gonna own anything paper it should be G uh, phys and PSLV. and even that to me when you talk about the redemption you can only redeem a 400-ounce gold bar out of PHYS, or I believe it's five 1,000-ounce silver bars minimum on PSLV. Larry, what do you think? Completely agree with Andy. Uh, the the big ones are a fraud. They've got paper gold in there. You know, some of their subparties are probably Lehman, so it won't, they won't get paid out in full. Uh, I trust the Sprott Trust, uh, but obviously, I think the best thing to do is just own the physical um, for the obvious estate planning and tax reasons. Um, you know think it through right um coins in your possession and possession of nine tenths in a, in a rough world to your question on the miners chris um i'll just address it briefly I, I run a fund that invests in the miners investing in the miners is really tough um it's a shitty business you're breaking rocks and uh there are lots of ways to lose money so for the average person probably just buying gdx or gdxj is good um there are within those you know indices and outside of them there's some other miners that are are very good but you got to kind of know what you're doing to pick them and, um, you know, the, the, the rule of thumb is if gold goes up 10%, the miners will go up 30%. Because a miner represents a stream of gold coming out of the ground. And the good news is if you catch the miners in a, bear, in a bull run, 
you know, you can really multiply your money quickly, but, you, but that timing, that macro timing is important. I mean, you know, my fund went up, you know, 97% and 120% in 1990, 2020. And I've given half of that back in the last two years because of the, because of the tightness in the monetary policy. Now I fully expect when it reverses that, you know, I'll go up another hundred or 200%, but so it's, it's very high, high beta stuff with a lot of risk. So, um, I, I just gave a presentation in Zurich. It's up on Twitter if people want to look at it. Um, and basically, um, you know, and I said, you know, don't try this at home. Um, you know, if you're if you're investing in the miners, you got to know what you're doing because it's a tough business. Well, what about something like the GDXJ for? Like, they're going to go up. If, if if we if what if what Andy and I foresee and you foresee occurring occurs, I think you know these miners are going to be the best performing stock category in the world. I think they're going to even even beat beating oil because, you know, oil oil has the risk that if the world economy really takes a hit, you know, demand will fall and therefore prices will fall somewhat. But um, to me, sound money is is the thing that everybody is going to learn they need in the next five years. And gold and silver are the the oldest form of sound money. People are going to realize that, and the companies that can mine them are going to you know do a moonshot in my opinion. And and yeah, just buying the indices is is probably the safest thing to do for the average investor. And there are two of them. There's GDX and there's GDXJ are the two that, that I would recommend. Andy, what do you see as a an end game for miners? Uh, you know, my friends over on Palisades Gold Radio have talked in the past about, you know, eventually a couple of the guests have said eventually the miners will be nationalized if all sure. of this stuff plays out the way that we predict. Do you foresee that being the case? Absolutely. In fact, uh, you go to mining.com today or yesterday, one of the uh, headlines is Mexican Senate expeditiously approved set of laws mining reform. You got uh, lithium being uh, nationalized, I think, by by Chile. And it's interesting, too, if you look at, um, you know, who the BRICS nations are aligning with, too. And Mexico just signed up. Peru is on the Belt Road. You're talking the two biggest producers of of silver in the world, but yeah, I think a hundred percent that you have to think of geographic and geopolitical risk when you're buying mining shares because if it all blows up, if you see this type of global reset, and who knows how we get there or when we get there or what it looks like, but when you see this type of system where it's every man and woman for for themselves. I think you will see a lot of these countries will nationalize will nationalize the mines. There's there's no question in my mind. I, I, you're already beginning to see it. I have to agree completely. And I I have a in the back of my mind. Um, I, I don't think we're at that stage yet. I think we get another real bull run coming out of this hole we're in right now. But in the back of my mind, I have the notion that, that I'm not sure I want to wait until the end game because right. I think this stuff is going to become so crazy valuable that, that governments are going to not be able to avoid wanting to grab it. Yeah, no, I feel Or being same. paid in dollars for it if the dollar collapses. I mean, these are all, you know, the worst part about all this, Chris and Larry, the worst part about all of this is that I never looked at the world through this type of dark lens. And I never looked at the world in a, in a conspiratorial slash maybe realistic there's a fine line there uh view before but when you look at all of the things that are being put into place if you really look it becomes is it just coincidental or is there something bigger at play here and and i do think that is part of the game i mean the biggest thing that i think we all have to deal with is is 
what happens if the dollar loses its world reserve status. And if that happens, then everything breaks apart. All of it, all of these dollar deals all across the globe. At that point, it's every man and woman for themselves. And I hate to sound that way. I do. I have three kids, my youngest being 15. I'm not, I'm not someone that has ever spoken this way my entire career. But the more that I dig into this stuff, the more I believe that there are bigger forces at play here. And I think the, the problem that a lot of people make is that they focus too much on on the dollar just here inside the United States and not enough attention is being played like you paid, like you said, Chris, the pieces of the board lining up to what happens if the dollar loses favor globally. And I think that is becoming more and more and more probable as time goes on. Well, the, U- the U.S. has lived beyond its means for a long time as a result of dollar hegemony. And and that's going to change. I mean, I don't I don't think the world is necessarily going to end. I mean, it's just a fourth turning. And unless we get into a shooting war, I think what's more likely to happen is it's just who is wealthy is going to change. Americans on a relative basis compared to the rest of the world are not going to be as wealthy as we've been or felt. And we're just not because, you know, we're not producing much. I mean, the producing countries that add, build, and do valuable stuff, you know, they're going to they're gonna be wealthier. They're going to get paid more for it. And, you know, us pushing around paper and creating TikTok videos, you know, nobody gives a <laughs> shit. Right? What did they just say in the U.K.? You just have to learn to be less wealthy. Yeah, right? Exactly. But that's really um, that's really what we're doing, right? That's that's the extent of it. Pushing paper and making videos, you know, dan- dancing around as though everything's fine as the world collapses behind us and you know andy just to go to what you said that you know look you've never been a doomsday sayer before you never spoke like this before and going back of course to our earlier discussion about being fear mongers i mean this is how i came to this point also it wasn't through you know i was never a dark conspiratorial uh you know i never saw the world through that lens but what happened was you know i grew up in a household where, you know, I was taught basic financial rules, right? Saving is a virtue. Collect interest on your savings. Don't live beyond your means. Don't spend what you don't have and don't rack up a lot of debt. And then it's like, okay. And then you start going through high school and you get some limited experience in like, all right, this is how you run a lemonade stand, right? You play that game on the computer. Okay, here's what I'm fucking paying for my raw goods. And here's what I'm selling it for. And and the rest is my margin. And, you know... Whatever my margin is, I sock some of it away so I can invest in expanding my business. And the rest is, you know, a profit I can distribute to my shareholders or whatever. So you're like, oh, okay. And then you go to college and you start learning about, okay, well, how do like businesses work? You start learning about equity analysis and start learning about corporate balance sheets and municipal balance sheets. And you start saying, oh, okay, you know, same kind of principles all at play here. All the way down from the microscopic level of, you know, me and, and my wallet earning what I, you know, earn for my job and my individual household all the way up to uh, Apple, okay? What does their balance sheet look like? Well, you know, they have uh, they have plenty of cash. They have a small debt position relative to what they earn. They can generate, a, you know, cash flow. They pay uh, a consistent yield. Um, and, and, you know, it's stock that people want to own. And then all of a sudden you get to the sovereign level, you know? Maybe in my late 20s, early 30s, I start looking at the sovereign level. And all of a sudden, what what do the central banks and the government want you to believe? They want you to believe that all of those rules that govern everything from, you know, 
the way you come home and sock away your paycheck to the way Apple stays in business, none of that stuff matters at the sovereign level somehow. And then you start to look at, okay, well, how does the global economy work? And it's like the poles are reversed. It's like the inverse of everything that you've learned from the bottom up. And so one of two things are true. Either the rules of economics are different at the macro level, at the global macro level, the sovereign level, or we're running the world's biggest Ponzi scheme. And <laughs> and that's how I kind of came to the, you know, personal stance that it really does. And you can see why, right? You can see the motivation, like Larry says, living beyond your means, political leaders that want to continue to uh, to get elected. I mean, it's been working for so long. Why the fuck wouldn't we keep kicking the can down the road, right? It's the goddamn easiest solution, and we don't like to think hard, and we sure as fuck don't like to be uncomfortable. I mean, we're a nation full of coddled, weak individuals that, you know, need comfort. And the politicians have to deliver that comfort if they want to save their own ass and get reelected. So it becomes this disgusting, incestuous, self-perpetuating cycle of doing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons. And then all of a sudden, here we are, right? And so, you know, that's how I came by it. I came by it, honestly. I'm I'm not a pessimistic person i don't leave the front door cursing underneath my breath every day and you know just walk around hating the world but in this case i mean how do you how do you deny well, how do you deny the fact for for example that our one-year sovereign cds's have blown out now you know twice what they were uh you know in 2008 twice where, where they were when when the u.s's debt was downgraded how do you ignore that you can't. I mean, the political system is broken, period. And that that's the fundamental problem, you know, that, that um, the system's broken. And, you, yeah, you did come by it, honestly, Chris. And, I mean, it, you know, Keynes said, look, in the long run, we're all dead. Well, guess what? The long run has arrived. Or, you know, yeah, Herb, right? Herb, Herb Stein said, you know, if something, can, Stein's law, if something cannot go on forever, it will end. Well, you know, increasing debt at a faster rate than you're increasing GDP, that's my chart, of, my lead chart on Twitter, that can't go on forever. At right. some point, you're going to have a debt crisis. And so, you know, this is all fits into the fourth turning, which is the book that I think instructs, you know, my views most of, of what's going on here in our society. And that is we, we started with a broken premise, Keynesianism, and we've we've run it as hard as we possibly could to the point where it got absurd. Negative interest rates. I mean, come on. Negative interest rates and zero rate cost of capital from 09 to 2015. I mean, that was truly absurd. And, you know, we, we pushed it just about as far as we could. And, and now it's broken. You know, it's like a, an engine redlined and we, and we broke it. You know, we, we, the valves yeah. blew out. And, you know, and, and um, now it's all, we're, all, you know, the only thing that's left is the crying. You know, we got to figure out how we're going to fix it and, and what, what, what the path is. And that's, that in and of itself is going to be incredibly difficult and tricky, you know, um, incredibly. But um, it will get fixed. And I, I have, I'm, I'm quite optimistic for the fact that once this is solved on the other side of this, things can get to be pretty damn good. Um, you know, even hyperinflations um, solve themselves quickly when you reset the sound money. I mean, in my view, what's really broken here is the money. The money is completely broken. You know, that's that's the core of the problem. And if we could solve that, 
you know, we would go back to, you know, we've got, you know, we got great technology, we got smart people, we got, you know, a better world in a lot of ways than it was even in the 70s. I look back at the 70s very romantically because I was a kid then and, you know, it was just fair. There was a middle class and, you know, the CEO of Ford lived down the street from us. I mean, he made maybe six times what the guy who worked on the line makes, you know, today CEO of Ford makes 14 million, the line worker makes 70, you know, um, you know, but but in the 70s, I mean, you know, we didn't have computers, we didn't have technology, we didn't have all the cool stuff we've got today. I mean, we should be living much better than we're living. But because the system is broken, you know, that's all that excess productivity got swept off and it's sitting in the pockets of billionaires who, you know, who are incredibly wealthy as a result of the, the cotillion, of, you know, cotillion effect that they've benefited from. So, you know, we need, to, we need to go back to a sound money system. I mean, that's really the underlying message here. I'm sure Andy would agree with that, and I, I think you do too, Chris. And, and when we get there, you know, we can be extremely optimistic. I'm, I'm very optimistic for the future of the world and the future of humanity uh, as soon as we return to sound money. What I'm not optimistic about is the path between here and sound money because <laughs> we've got all these, we got all the, well, we got all these bozos and idiots who are either, you know, and we can't decide, are they stupid or are they evil? And, and there's, a, there's a mix of both. I mean, some of them are just plain stupid. You know, but but a lot of them are evil, and you know they they need to you know one friend one of my friends on Twitter, Greg Foss, says you know we're advancing sound money one funeral at a time. You know we 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 need Buffett and Munger to get out of the way, um, and and I I really think that's true because I think you know younger people understand are really coming to understand how important sound money is. You know they can't buy houses because they're competing with BlackRock. I mean I I don't know exactly what your age is, Chris, but I mean. You know, I, I have found, I mean, I've been fighting this battle for a long time. I think Andy has, too. We're closer in age. Um, but what, what's really pleasing to me is I found all these young people who, who really get it. I mean, they've been completely screwed. I mean, my kids are in their 20s. They're all sitting there looking at me. Dad, how am I going to buy a house on this salary? There's no way. I can't afford housing. And, you know, I mean, they're obviously looking for a handout, and I'm not going to give it to them. But, but the point is, it's, you know, the, the system is just broken. It's, real, it's really broken, you know. Andy, I want to ask you um, uh, to kind of dovetail off what Larry is talking about. Larry thinks the problem's the money. What I've noticed here over the last mm, two months, maybe, is a uh, deep loathing for crypto and Bitcoin coming out of the Democratic Party here, led by Elizabeth Warren, which leads me to ask a couple of things, uh, one of which is to take what Larry said, there is a huge underbelly of the younger generation now that understands what sound money is and why it's important in a way that they, you know, in a way that younger generations didn't do in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. Maybe they got it back when we were on a gold standard because it was baked into the cake. But then all of a sudden, it kind of slipped out of the view of the younger generations in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. And all of a sudden, Bitcoin comes around. And one thing I've given it credit for and will always give it credit for is educating a lot of people on economic basics and the basics of sound money. Uh, regardless of whether or not you believe it's the future of sound money, it sure has empowered a lot of younger people to understand the chicanery that the central banks are pulling. What I'm what I'm thinking about here over the last month as I watch Elizabeth Warren 
you know, use these banking collapses, and rightfully so, the collapse of FTX and a lot of other fraud, waste, corruption, abuse, and just general bilge that has come out of the crypto ecosystem. When I watch her use those as reasons to kind of do battle with crypto, I wonder whether or not we are making our way towards... uh, I wonder what the hell would happen if they tried to ban it. Now, understanding that the that the case for Bitcoin now relies on how quickly it has been adopted and understanding the ideology behind it and the manifesto behind it and the amount of people that it has empowered with this understanding of sound money, I feel like it could be a fucking war zone if, if they try to ban Bitcoin. What say both of you? Andy, you first. Yeah, well, maybe that's part of the reason they let FTX fail and didn't issue regulation. And, and maybe that's part of the reason. If And I'm pretty sure I'm right on this. Signature Bank had a large exposure to, to crypto, and they let them fail instead of telling them, hold on, in 24 hours, if you just hold on, we'll buy back all your bonds at, at par and, and, and give you a loan. You don't have to fail point of it is is that i just wonder if they are in their own way trying to create so much uncertainty and and, uh, over the crypto space that it that you can lose everything that it is a non-regulated uh wild west that there is nothing safe about it i just wonder if that is really their intention in other words they're 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 waging war on crypto and instead of going straight at it they're letting it really kind of blow up itself or let people lose an awful lot of money before they come in and regulate it i mean they they didn't have to let signature bank fail but they did and there was a whole bunch of crypto money in there and i i just think the same thing is true about ftx how the hell do the regulators miss that how can you not really see what is going on with with a company so big that they have naming rights on the basketball stadium here in Miami. I just don't understand it. So I don't know. I think that they ultimately, that's what they want to do. And I think the path that they have chosen is to freak everyone out again about just how risky it is, just how unstable it is, just how, how, how uh, it isn't uh, a, a, a good place to store your money. It's a speculative, a very, very, very speculative investment. I think they are going to wage war on cryptocurrencies, quite frankly. Whereas an entire bank full of VC garbage, cash-burning seed companies, right? I mean, you can argue crypto is an air pocket, but after 10 years of negative rates and you're sitting on a portfolio of the worst ideas in history, you know, soft bank style investments, right? We works and just cash furnaces that have no innovation and no use and no product and no service. And, you know, founders that go on fucking meditate meditation retreats instead of having board meetings, you know, you could just argue, all right, but that's just as big of an air pocket as crypto, but it is interesting you are right. Signature had a, a large crypto component to it. You know, they let Signature fail. And here's here's First Republic that's got a portfolio full of garbage. And all of a sudden, no, it's a different story. We, you that's know, the we, point. We step that's in, right? Point. That's the point. And screw everyone. Have them lose all their money. They'll never come back in. And I guess, look, the bottom line is simply this, is that 
Uh, I think that, you know, what if another country, pick any country that you want that has that has markets, and, and what if they ran massive, massive budgets every year and their president shook hands with the air? You know, I mean, can you only imagine what would happen to their stock market, their currencies, their bond markets? They would all collapse. And it is the it is the fact that we have been able to to do all of these things uh, and have insane government dysfunction because the dollar is the world reserve currency. And that really, to me, when you look at, at crypto and, and what it is showing, it's an alternative to the dollar that, quite frankly, got more attention than gold ever did yeah. in my career. And I think they wanted to stem that. They needed to stop that. But if they came in and started regulating it right from the get-go, there would have been a war. There would have been like, you know, it would have only reaffirmed everyone's notion that crypto is the place to be. But it certainly, to me, uh, is a much easier path to take if you let everyone get their ass kicked first and then come in on a white (laughs) horse and say, I'll save the day. We're going to regulate this industry, and the majority of them will be dead and buried. Yeah, maybe Bitcoin survives and Ethereum and a few others that have the the use cases, but I think what they're really trying to do is show the people who believe that, that Bitcoin was going to go to a million dollars and make everyone wealthy and supplant the dollar that, no, 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 that's not the case. And I And when they did that with Signature Bank, that's really when I started to kind of believe that this is a war on crypto, and I don't think you've seen the end of it yet. Maybe that's what the 80,000 IRS agents are going to do. Because one last thing, and I'll, I'll let you speak on that. I have a, a very, very wealthy client of mine, and, and and she told me how she trades in and out of the ecosystem all the time in crypto, inside the ecosystem, from one to the next to the next. And I don't own any crypto, so I'm not the right guy to, to ask how this all works. But she changes from one to the next to the next to the next to the next and made lots of money. I said, did you report that? Because that's selling apples to watermelons to cantaloupes to pears. Did you report that? No, but no one will ever know. And I thought, Jesus Christ, you're dead. When these agents come and start to look at all of the trading done inside the cryptosphere and ask you, how did you get from A to B? There are people that are just going to be killed. And I think that's what they want to do. They want to to freak everyone out, whether it be by blowing up the banks, blowing up the exchanges, or having the IRS come in and dig deep into um into people's portfolios and and all of a sudden i don't think crypto will have the allure that it once did what do you think larry oh boy there's a lot there i mean first of all let me just make a distinction um i believe in bitcoin as a technical innovation that i think could become a form of you know the equivalent of a digital form of sound sound money so in a sense digital gold i think all the other cryptos are worthless including ethereum so um, I make a very big distinction. I, you, I guess you could call Bitcoin a crypto, but I don't. I, I think it's an entity unto itself. Um, whether they let FTX fail to um, hurt the whole area, who, who the hell knows? I mean, I will say this. Those of us who were into Bitcoin, we all knew Sam Bankman-Fried was a fraud. I mean, I felt like that guy, uh, Markopoulos, who was calling out you know, Bernie Madoff, and we could see it a mile away, and anyone could see it. So maybe they did see it, and they just thought, well, let's let all these people get burnt. Um, I, I think a bigger uh, issue that's likely to occur uh, for all of these things, and I think we have to all prepare ourselves for it, is that as their currency continues to fail, and the failure is pointed out most notably by gold, silver, and Bitcoin prices, um, they are going to do everything they can to start to demonize us as we're ruining their beautiful fiat system. 
and you know whether it be taxation or threats of taxation or whatever they're going to try to convince people you don't want to go there and, and one of the beautiful things about bitcoin in my opinion is unlike the gold price which was heavily suppressed you know bitcoin went up 5x in a 18 month period in the 20, 20 21 time frame and you know hard to suppress something that goes up 5x um as luke roman says it was kind of the one operating monetary fire alarm right i mean the right. gold fire alarm has been suppressed as a result of the systems they've got in place. But what Bitcoin was saying is, hey, you guys want to print a lot of money? Fine. Well, you know, this alternative currency is going to be worth a lot more money. And so I think that that trend is going to continue. I fully expect that when gold goes through 2100, Bitcoin will go through 40,000. And then within a year or two, I think easily we'll have gold north of 3,000 and Bitcoin north of 100,000. And to me, that's going to send off signals in D.C. and other places that, you know, because I when, when Bitcoin did that big run up from the 10,000 area to the 50,000 area, I mean, you got to believe alarm bells were just going off in every central bank in the world thinking, holy shit, this is a problem. And um, my sense is as that continues, they are going to come back with what I would call plan B, which is, OK, well, you know, these these are anti-american you know you've got to right. buy war bonds you should not be buying these things we are going to we were going to put a big tax on crypto we are going to make i mean I, i've game theory this all out but i've seen what they've done because they banned short selling and so forth in the past you know they're going to say something like you know you've got to report all your crypto holders you know yeah you've got anonymous addresses but you've got to tell us what they are and how much you have you know and then say it's for tax reasons um you know so i i, I think that there is no doubt that the other side is going to fight back against the two forms of money that ruin their fiat privilege. Um, and, and we have to be prepared for that. Um, you know, the beautiful thing about both assets is they're bearer assets. Right. And, you know, boating accidents are real, right? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, I think at the end of the day, both of these assets are going to outlive this government system. And that's why we'll win. You know, and, and, and people who have these sound money assets, I think, are going to be some of the wealthiest people in the world in a reset system. So, um, you know, I'm quite bullish longer term, but um, in the short term, it's like buckle up because, yeah, I mean, Operation Choke Point, in my opinion, you know, that's it's evil and wrong. I mean, Signature would definitely not have failed. I mean, they, they assassinated. Hey, Barney Frank even said that. Nick Carter's documented it, you know, extensively on Twitter. So. Uh, signature, signature, you know, was killed, um, and and I know because I've got people who are trying to set up funds that are using crypto. I mean, banks are doing everything they can to discourage the ramps between, you know, Bitcoin and the traditional financial system. I mean, they do not want to see this get going, and they know, they recognize what an existential threat it is to the fiat privilege that they now hold. They definitely recognize that. We know that. They're not stupid. I mean, Elizabeth Warren is evil, but she's not stupid. She's actually smart, sadly. Um, and that's why she's out to get it. Is there any way to get government buy-in on Bitcoin over the long term? I mean, is well, there a, is there a way for the House to kind of win? And, and Well, there's a, yeah, there, there are some people who support it. Uh, Senator Loomis from Wyoming supports it. Several of the Congress people support it. There's a guy named Jason Lowry who's written a book about it, who's uh, um um, he works at the Pentagon, uh, or works for the Pentagon. He's a he's an MIT uh, doctoral thesis on why Bitcoin is strategic, and it, it actually is likely to emerge as the base currency. And we should be doing Bitcoin mining. Um, as an example, Russia right now is extensively doing Bitcoin mining and building their own reserves in Bitcoin. We believe, um, and he makes an argument that from a national security perspective, we should the government, the U.S. government, should be mining and holding Bitcoin as a core neutral reserve asset 
Um, has that has he made any progress? Um, I've I've got friends who are friends of his who say that at certain levels in the military they get it. I mean, there's a part of you know the government's a lot of things. I mean, it's 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 all the elected people who make all the noise and try to get reelected. There's also a you know the the military industrial complex, and some piece of the military industrial complex understands that the strong dollar has actually been bad for us. I mean, it hollowed out all our manufacturing. I mean, you know, how would we go to war with China today when, you know, everything we, we need, we buy from China? Right. I and mean, that would be kind of a problem, wouldn't it? You know, and so, so you know, there, there, are, there are people within the U.S. government who I believe are aware of the issues here. And um, what we have to hope is that over a period of time, you know, as my friend says, one funeral at a time, more and more enlightened people are going to get into more and more positions of power and take us down toward that sound money future that I envision, which will be much better than the world we live in today. Andy, let me ask you a question, man. How important do you think 2024 is going to be politically? So dovetailing off this issue of, um, you know, the government versus Bitcoin or, you know, the issue that's been at large here for the last 50 years, the government versus sound money. Um, just in general, do you think that Bitcoin and sound money can become an issue that people can make a political issue and, and run on, and, and it can be something that generates votes and generates political interest? Um, do you think there's any possible way that change is affected meaningly in 2024, or do you feel like maybe both parties are a lost cause and Really, it doesn't really matter because the train is kind of unstoppable at this point. I got an answer to that if you want. But go ahead, Andy. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel that I I wish I didn't feel this way, but I think we're so far down the rabbit hole that I don't know that either either party has the ability to uh, to pull us out of this this tailspin. I mean, I I, I just have had enough of the the. <sighs> The moving away from capitalism, the vilifying of capitalism, the 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 um, all of the regulations, all of the uh, the decisions that are being made uh, in this country that are just so anti anything that I've ever experienced. Stop it! Knock it off. That I've ever experienced uh, as a businessman. Um, God help us if the Democrats win in so, twenty. So my view is the existing political parties are hopeless. I mean, if they run Biden against Trump, I mean, give me a break. Um, having said that, there are interesting cracks in the facade, and I'll point one out that you guys may or may not be aware of. Look, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., um, deeply fraud in some of his personal life matters, not going to go there. But uh, he has come out and basically said, you know, they're trying to close the off-ramps to Bitcoin because they printed too much money and there's all this enormous inflation. Um, he's also said the CIA killed his uncle and probably his father. Um, here's a guy who is saying the quiet part out loud, and I think he would have the entire Bitcoin vote if he endorsed Bitcoin, and he has. He referenced Nick Carter and some of his things on, on Twitter, and I highly encourage you to go look at his Twitter thread. Um, you know, basically, he's saying the quiet part out loud, and, of course, if you go to his Wikipedia uh, page, it basically leads off with his well-known conspiracy theorist because he called out the vaccines and the mandates and all that kind of stuff and um you know how do they deal with this biden has said we're not going to have uh debates we're just not going to have them you know I, I i've got the nomination you know we'll have primaries i guess he can get on the primary but we're not i'm not going to debate these guys i mean really 
I mean, this this is America, and a sitting president is going to not debate a contender who you know who wants to propose something different than what you know the president is doing. I mean, this political system is so stinky and broken; it's just disgusting. I mean, I basically hate everybody in it, and I'm I'm even suspicious of Kennedy, but at least he's bringing a narrative that's slightly different, and he's saying some of the quiet stuff out loud. Well, and there's yeah, no, there's, and I don't ahead, I don't Andy. know I don't know his platform. Cause I hate politics. I truly do. I mean, the last four years, last two and a half years or however many years, two years, it's, it's just, it's been, I can't even watch it anymore. <laughs> it, it's very disturbing to me, but I have seen a few of his, his interviews and what you're saying to me seems to me more that he's a little bit more of a centrist. And, you know, I guess the bottom line is I don't like being in a, in a country where you're defined as a person by who you voted for in your last election. Right. And I think that's the part of the, the, the current system that, that I find so distasteful where you can't even go to Thanksgiving dinner and talk to your family about, about anything, having an, an open debate about anything. So if we are going to have uh, a democratic uh, president, God help us if it's the current administration, if it were someone like Kennedy who was open to, at least from what you're saying, I guess I ought to read about it a little bit more, more of a, of a, of a middle ground and, and to not taking the, this, this popular narrative that we see right now with the democratic party, I would certainly be into it, but I, I'd be lying if I said, I, I, I really wished that, that Trump would be president. He, he was a buffoon and a moron in the way he spoke, but his policies to me, put this country in the best place we've been in, in a very long time. <laughs> and, and to me, I would just, I, I can get past the idiocy of his commentary and his, his tweets and all of the things that, that makes people hate him so much, but his actions and his policy and the way the world looked at us and our energy independence right. and, you know, everything just seemed to be moving along at a better clip. And now all of a sudden it's all fallen off the table. So I have, I'm very, very concerned if we have this administration in, in play for another four years, I think we're dead. Well, I think, and, and more alarming than the politicians on both sides of the aisle because there are no shortage of just complete and total useless dildos on both sides of the aisle. More alarming than that, I, I have found over the last couple of years, is the willingness by many of the useful idiots to just carry the line of whatever their party is without thinking critically about the issue. And, you know, there are, believe it or not, there are issues I would fall probably on the Democratic side of, and there are also a lot probably a lot more issues I would fall on the conservative side of, but that doesn't mean that I take my cues or my talking points from... So when you have a party out there, you know, ironically now, like the Democratic Party, pushing for censorship, pushing for, you know, vaccine mandates, pushing for those types of things, there, there's no shortage of useful idiots. And on the Republican side, too, when you have Republicans that are advocating for easy money policies... You know, like Trump was doing, uh, you know, he criticized it. But then after he was elected, he was like, rates should go negative. They're already doing it in Europe. You know, so there's no shortage of idiocy on both sides of the aisle. My, my last question to you guys, and I really appreciate your, your guys' time. I knew this was going to be a little bit longer one today because uh, I wanted to kind of get it all here. Um, but my last question to both of you is, um, what do you think – the new global economic bifurcation means for globalization and more importantly for these world economic forum, Klaus Schwab 
types because on one hand you know the the, the bifurcation makes me think okay you know it's got an anti-globalization feel to it it's got a uh, you know a brexit kind of everybody dispersed to your respective corners feel to it on the other hand you got this dickhead that gets up in front of everybody uh, you know, speaking of useful idiots, Brian Stelter was there this year too, just just happily, happily going along to try to help f- help people figure out what's the best way for us all to live. And of course, painting with the broadest brushstroke possible. Let's just make one decision here, and six billion people, I'm sure, will be fine with it. Um, what is what does the future of the world look like to the both of you? In terms of, I guess, nationalism versus globalization is my. I, I I'll take that first. I think there's a huge trend toward decentralization. Um, I think we we hit peak centralization World War II. We figure out how to kill 40 million people, 50 million people quickly. I think I think the world is decentralizing. I mean, the, the microchips started it, then you know, then computers, then the internet, now Bitcoin to a degree. And um, I, I think that, you know, the, the WEF is going to become a footnote. Nobody gives a shit what those people think. I mean, nobody gives a shit. Nobody's going to listen to them. I mean, I think national governments are going to become a footnote over time. Um, I think we'll, we'll devolve into smaller governmental entities, more like state entities. Um, and people will come to realize that, you know, we don't need nuclear weapons. Um, you know, the, they'll, you're going to see, in my opinion, um, you're going to see political bodies are going to get smaller and smaller, you know, and, and that's a good thing. I mean, if you kind of look at a place like Switzerland where the cantons have all the power, there's really no national power, very little national power. I think that's likely to happen. I could see states trying to make an effort to, do, you know, to, to get out of the U.S. probably won't succeed. But, but the point is, um, I think we're headed to a world that is much more decentralized in every respect, and that's driven by you know, Zoom and technology and, and, and you know, what, what, why do we need a central government? I mean, what does, what does a central government really provide us? Do you know what I mean? I, I, I'm, I'm kind of lost for that. I mean, we need, we need rule of law. You know, we need our local police departments. We need a fire department. Um, you know, but, but a lot of these government functions, I mean, they're not, they're not essential. And, you know, wars are just a waste of time and money. And so I, I think there's, I think we're devolving towards, and I'm talking 50 years out, not in my lifetime, but um, I think we're devolving towards a world that looks a lot different than the centralized world that the Industrial Revolution built for us. Yeah, I, I, a, I actually like that. I like that approach. I like that thought. And I think there are people, there are groups that are pushing back against the centralization. You can look right now, there's, I don't know, seven or eight states Texas, Wyoming, Idaho, Alaska, Missouri, um, Kansas, uh, a few others that have, uh, in fact, I think Tennessee is, has it on their docket. I think um, there are 42 states that have removed some or all taxes from gold, but these other eight states right now are talking about not only allowing gold and silver to be kept in the treasury of these respective states, but also to be used in all debt, uh, public and private, to be used as a form of money. You have the representative from Idaho who stood up on the on the legislative floor and said, we need to allow our constituents to do what the central banks of the world are doing to fight back against the madness of the monetary policy of the Federal Reserve and to own gold and silver to protect themselves. There certainly is 
a pushback, but at the same time, I think there is this drive towards towards exactly that. Towards, I mean, look at what's happening with the the regional banks far pushing everyone into what is, appears to be a handful of commercial banks. And if you look at at the gal who might be the architect of a lot of this, her name is Lael Brainerd, talking about she was at the at the Treasury, then went to the Fed. She was second in charge at the Fed recently, and now just is running an economic advisory committee uh, at the White House. Her whole thesis was removal of all of the banks and and modern monetary theory directly enacting um, all monetary policy directly from the Fed to the public. Well, the first step in that would be to remove the decentralization, get rid of all of the regional banks, push everyone into a handful of commercial banks, and then enact this monetary policy. In other words, I think you have, it's a war, it's a battle going on. There is certain a certain number of people and thought that we need to to oh, I, make I, I, centralized. I completely agree, Andy, and I should have I should have prefaced my f- thoughts by saying we're fighting a war. I mean, they want to shove us all into a centralized world of CBDCs. Right. I mean, they want to make us all so poor and afraid that they control our money, they control what we do, that we get social scores. I mean, as, as the natural trend of decentralization, which all the technology that we have in the world is giving us more freedom and taking us in a direction that's a beautiful direction where. You know, Joe Rogan is more important than a CNN or a Fox News. You know, the the people who are in the old positions of power are doing everything they can to prevent this from happening. Yeah. But I think they're going to fail. I just I, I don't think they can stop it. You know, I mean, human beings do what human beings do, which is we we all seek to live our best lives. And you know, I mean, sure, if you're desperate and you don't have any money, and somebody offers you some money through a CBDC, you'll take it. But um, I think there I think there's enough of a remnant in this country that's going to tell them to go pound sand. And more importantly, I think that I think the financial system, the mon- the monetary system. I mean, I, I I truly believe I'm, I'm spiritual. I truly believe this is God given. I think God is going to croak the monetary system in order to to save us. And I think that's a I think that's a great thing. I really do. And, and, and I mean, it, I, you know, every every system has its breaking point. You know, and I'll I'll just right. go back to China here uh, a couple of years ago when they started to, or maybe it was just about a year ago when they really started to press with the covid lockdowns again uh the real draconian lockdowns and china of all places where you know i generally think of the citizens there as obedient and bought into the system and you know okay with doing what's best for the country but it got to a point where they tried to extend those lockdowns again and they just started to fucking riot and they were just like (laughs) you know what it's not happening and when you see that in china you're like wow like what a great stark reminder that there's six billion of us and fucking 20 of you in you know in quote-unquote power and at the end of the day like you're saying larry everything kind of has its has its breaking point right and you know one of the one of the cool things about content creation and you joe rogan's a great analog right because and you will see the same thing with tucker carlson right wherever he lands uh it's going to be the same story which is it doesn't matter whether or not he's on fox news it doesn't matter whether or not you know because he's gonna find a way to uh to make himself accessible and uh and then if we get to a real draconian point where all of a sudden they start jailing journalists and stopping free speech you're going to see a different type of uprising well and, and and chris and chris you know we are all dutch farmers and we are all canadian truckers right 
I mean, you right. just got the you've got these fucking great populist movements. I mean, you know, this is it's seventeen. I mean, I would I just tweeted on something on on Twitter. It's, you know, I mean, these people should be they should be looking at seventeen eighty nine, right? I mean, this is you know, at, at, at some point in time, people just say, hey, I've, you know, or or seventeen seventy six. At some point in time, people just say, hey, fuck you guys, I've had enough. Right. You know, <laughs> I've, I've I've just fucking had enough. Right. I'm not doing that. You know what I mean? I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what it costs my family. You know, fuck you. We're not doing it. Right. And as you say, there's six billion of us, you know? Right. So, and I'm not it, trying to foment that. I'm not trying to say, no, hey, let's either. all stand up and have a revolution. But I'm just saying it's just a matter of fact that, that you exactly. know, that you can only push so far before exactly. you get some pull, right? Exactly. And 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 I would say that the, the winds of history are on the side of freedom and pushing back on these big organizations. I mean, they're 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 losing their grip on power. It's very very clear to me. I want to ask. Have they completely you, lost it? No, but they're losing it. I want to ask you one last question. I'm sorry. I know I said that that would be the last yeah. one, but another one came to me. Andy, you can go first, and then Larry, and we'll we'll definitely end on this. Uh, the year right now is 2023. Hopefully, with the miracle of uh, digitization and the internet, this interview lives on for. Uh, a while we'll all be dead soon it, you know in the year 2123 which is 100 years from now what what would you tell somebody 100 years from now listening to this interview right now andy you go first thing you larry and then it's miller time i would um you know, again i'm gonna be the killjoy here i think uh <laughs> i think that and i and i hate it because i'm i'm really a very optimistic person but I think that people will go back and realize that that we squandered a great opportunity, that um, that this country had amazing privilege of being the world reserve currency and we squandered it. And I think that uh, the power will have shifted eastward. I think that the real power will be in the BRICS nations. It will be with the countries that that are our adversaries at this point. I think that they're the ones accumulating all of the commodities and all of the gold. And I think that um, when you look at the old statement, he who has the gold makes the rules. It just seems to me that this debt-based Keynesian system that that we have squandered um, and have, I think, exhausted the good graces of our foreign creditors is coming to an end. So if I had to guess, it would be a a movement eastward um, in terms of power away from the West to the East. And uh, the good old days, I guess you would say would have been a hundred years in the, in the mirror. What would you tell somebody, Larry, listening in the year 2123? I just say, you know, look, we, we, we did the best we could. And aren't you glad we got rid of those central banks and, and returned you to a sound money system? I mean, I think that, <laughs> I think the lesson I think the lesson to be learned here for any people at any point in time is is study the lessons of history and recognize that hubris leads to mistakes. I mean right. as as Andy pointed out, I mean, you know, the United States post World War II was sitting on top of the world and and we had the chance, you know, to to really make the world go in a fabulous direction in the next, you know, fifty or sixty years and we fucked it up. I mean, we just completely and totally fucked it up, you know, and it's, it's just, it's shameful. Yeah. It's absolutely shameful. And, you know, the arrogance of some of the people in power, you know, the, the, you know, the Dulles brothers and the way they set up the CIA and then the way the CIA murdered Kennedy and, you know, the Vietnam war, blah, 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 blah. I mean, 
The founding documents of the United States are the best political documents ever written in the history of mankind, in my belief. And yet, uh, we've 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 deviated from those documents. We've drifted away, and that's a tragedy. And it's cost the world a lot of lives and a lot of a lot of pain and suffering. Hopefully, you know, we're going to get it fixed. But um, I would just caution anybody at any time in history to to study history and try and recognize where you are in the cycle and. You know, when um, when it looks like you, you you got the world by the balls, you know you got to you got to check your privilege and ask yourself, am I, you know, am I being arrogant here? Are we misbehaving? And because the United States misbehaved badly post World War II, in my opinion. And Larry, you'd think the federal government would do everything in its power to to protect this extraordinary privilege, and it just seems as though they're doing everything but that. And no, they're protecting they're protecting their own privilege. I mean. One of the other big mistakes America made, in my opinion, is it just, it, you know, the, it used to be, I mean, like as an example, I remember my, my, my grandparents talking about how, you know, they would just never, even if they had to, they would never take welfare just as a matter of pride, right. you know what I mean, and, and, and honor and, and, you know, and principle. And, you know, that's just so, and, and I, remember, I remember more of that attitude in the 60s and 70s. And that's just so lost. I mean, America just became one big money grab. I mean, just everything in America is about grabbing money. And that's just, that's, you know, and that's really tragic, in my opinion, because there's a lot more to life than money, just a lot more. And, uh, you know, there's honor, principle, integrity, hard work, you know, meaning. I mean, just a, a ton of things. And money is, you know, money is just what helps you pay the bills and eat food, you know. So <laughs> it's sad. It's sad that that, that you know, that that ethos um, crept in. Um, but yet, you know, in my opinion, the higher power is about to educate a whole world that that was the wrong way to go. Um, and, uh, that's not going to be any fun for any of us, but it's, I don't think it's avoidable sadly at this point. So Chris, I, I want to thank you for having me on Andy. Likewise, I really enjoy your comments, your knowledge of all this stuff. Um, it's, yeah, it's, um, it's a mess we're in, but you know, we're, it's, it's the mess we got and we got to play a role and try and take people in the right direction and. That's why I'm always advocating for sound money. I know you guys are too. So, yep. And I'll just um, say, I'll just say in closing, you know, I I hate the finance industry, and I hate everybody in it. And there's I can count on one hand the number of people that uh, that I'm honored to speak to and that I love hearing from. And and you guys are numbers one and two on that list. And George Gammon's up there as well too. I really like him. And so yeah, he's uh, great. It, it's just it's a privilege to be able to speak to you guys about this. And I really don't give a fuck if people think that we're in an echo chamber. I made a joke about it before the before we started that, you know, this is the echo chamber conversation. But when you zoom out, I mean, the three of us are in the very, very, very small minority. And so, Absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it is a privilege to have you both on. It's a privilege to know both of you guys. And uh, I hope you guys I enjoy feel the, the same rest way. of your day. You're you're doing it you're doing it right. You'll become your own form of Joe Rogan in the in the in the investing in monetary world. So I say yeah, that all the time. He's the yeah. closest thing to it, and you're the only guy that I read every single time you publish something. And by extension, I read Larry's because you're always in it, yeah. Larry. So I I uh, I think that you, Chris, get it, and I think Larry, you get it, and I like your optimism. I need a little bit more of it. I guess it's just kind of a drag that I've been. Um, so inundated with all of this stuff that it's hard for me to see the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm, I'm really searching for it, but either it's way, there, man, it's there. We're going to, we're going nice to get out to, of it. It's just nice to know that there are a few other people who, who, 
who make me feel like I'm not insane after all. <laughs> yeah, guys, I got to run. I'm getting I'm getting the all red right. light from my wife. So yep. good, good talking to you both. We'll talk soon. It was a pleasure to speak to both of you. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that was Larry Lepard and my dear friend Andy Sheckman. Wonderful people. Andy is president of Miles Franklin Precious Metals. Larry is the head of the EMA GARP Fund. I will put their information in the podcast description if you want to follow them on Twitter or whatever. Uh, but an honor to have them both on today and an honor to have you listening. I really appreciate it. All right, folks, I'm out of here. I hope everybody enjoys their week. Peace.